here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everyone. This is Chris here. Just taking a brief moment before the show to let you all know that I'm going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast. Now, this is not permanent. I will be coming back probably very soon. It probably won't even be very long, but... This has just been a hectic time for me in my personal life, and I really haven't been able to devote the the time and energy and attention to the podcast that it needs and deserves. You know, the entire process of making this show, there's a lot that goes into it, from pre-production to post-production, up until when it pops in your feed. It's all very detail-oriented and time-consuming, and I love it and I enjoy it. But right now, I just have some things going on that have prevented me from really being fully present in it. And Andrew brings so much to the show. He does such a great job. And our guest hosts, they bring so much to the show when we have them on. And I wouldn't want to phone it in and not deliver on my end and drag the show down. So I just need to take a little bit of time to take care of a few things in my life. And once that's all squared away, I'll be back. But for now, I mean, the show must go on. And it'd be a shame if it didn't continue on just because I'm not here. So Andrew will be holding down the fort while I'm gone. So without any further ado... Let's get into it, enjoy the show, and I'll be back before you know it. It's my music. You're listening to Music of the Mat on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling. It's all part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. I'm the barbarian, Andrew Rich. And as you heard there in the intro, my usual partner in crime, the Scorelord, Chris Maffei, he is not here. He will be taking a little break from the podcast to focus on some real-life things that require his full attention. You know, Chris is such an integral part of this podcast, and if he needs to take some time off and get his things in order so he can come back 100% fully charged for the podcast, I am all for it. I told him. Take as long as you need, because we will be here, ready for you to come back, rip raring to go. Like Chris said, it's not permanent. He's not leaving the show. It's not like he's G, double O, double N, double E, gone. It's not like that at all. He will be back as soon as he can be. In the meantime, I will still be here, running the ship, making sure everything is in tip-top condition. It's kind of like how on Star Trek Voyager, when Captain Janeway would go on an away mission and Chakotay would be left in charge, except in this case, Chris is not a woman and I'm not Native American. But I think the analogy still stands. Today, episode 13, my guest co-host is someone you can hear on the Lucha Underground podcast, Lucha of the Hidden Temple, which is also part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. It is Dr. Nove himself, Chris Novembrino. Chris, welcome to the podcast, my friend. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I, I'm sorry that Chris isn't able to join us. I hope that he bops out whatever is going on in his personal life and gets himself in the right mental place to get back on the air because you guys got a pretty nifty show here. Oh, that's so sweet, man. Thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, I know Chris would appreciate it so much. We both love positive words about the podcast from listeners and from fellow podcasters. So thank you so much for that. Now, for those listeners who do not know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with wrestling. Okay, so with my history of wrestling, it started when I was about seven years old. I had this friend in Massachusetts named Andrew, and we used to hang out and we'd play video games. We'd play Mario Brothers and all that stuff. And he was very into WCW Saturday Night. Like, that was his program television. He would watch it every single week. And so we would watch WCW Saturday Night. And then WCW launched Nitro. So I was a WCW kid. I was all about Big Bubba. And I liked Vader. And I liked all of those sorts of wrestlers. And I was watching right when the New World Order angle started. I was very into the Cruiserweights, uh, which kind of makes sense now that I'm doing Lucha Underground and all of that sort of thing. Um, so that was my starting point. I watched all through the Monday Night Wars. I got into high school, which for me was around 2000 to 2004. And by the end of high school, I wasn't watching wrestling so heavy anymore. At the end of the Monday Night Wars with, and the way that WCW as a product ended in 2000. I mean, it was a joke. It's no coincidence that, you know, Keep It 2000 is doing good numbers this year on another network. Because WCW got so shitty that it became a... A parody of itself. Um, so I stopped watching wrestling for about a decade. And then I had another friend, Cody, who dragged me back into the wrestling vortex uh, about, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. And now I am uh, knee deep in it, as they say. I watch a lot of New Japan um, outside of watching Lucha Underground for Voice of Wrestling. Uh, when I'm watching wrestling recreationally, I watch a lot of New Japan. And then I also have a job that is in the business, but I'm not allowed to really talk about it on the air. Although someday I will, and uh, maybe I will let you do that interview and we'll talk at depth about what I actually do professionally. Yeah, before we started, you told me a few stories, which uh, <laughs> we'll keep them hush-hush for now. Yes. Let's just say, but uh, as far as music goes, uh, where do your interests lie there, whether in wrestling or out of wrestling? Well, as far as music goes, I'm actually a professional musician. Uh, this is obviously something I don't get to talk about a lot on Lucha the Hidden Temple, but I like my apartment is just a museum of guitars and amplifiers and that sort of thing. I used to teach music for many years. I write all the music for my shows, too. So if you've listened to Don't Worry About the Government or Lucha the Hidden Temple, the music at the head of that is actually stuff that I've written, or in the case of covering I'm a Real American, music that I covered. So I love wrestling themes. I, I love video game music. I love instrumental music of all sorts, but wrestling music very much uh, got baked into my brain's musical DNA at a young age. And I, and I think what I like so much about wrestling music is how it triggers the synesthesia. You hear a song and it makes you think of that wrestler's physicality walking to the ring. It makes you think of the mood of that wrestler coming in. It's also evocative. And wrestling themes at their best, you hear those opening notes and it automatically gets you into that mindset. My favorite example of this is uh, the fake out that happens every time Natty Neidhart comes to the ring <laughs> where it comes with that opening squeeze. Doom, doom, and you're doom, like, doom, fuck doom, yeah, doom, Bret Hart's going to be on this Raw. And then you're like, oh no, it's just Natty. 
Oh, so I, I think that that's really evocative. Or the same way that like when Brock Lesnar's weedy, 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 like that hits, you can hear if you're in a house, the crowd's just like, fuck yeah, Lesnar. Or if the glass breaks. Uh, I, I've been in Texas a number of times. You know, I live in Dallas. And I've been in the house where they've just played the Austin theme song at the during a break you know they're showing like a package on the trump but that glass breaks and the crowd thinks oh shit here comes austin everyone's ready for that that's music magic dude and that's what i love about wrestling music that you kind of don't quite get with just making regular rock and roll or something like that you have this immediate connection with the audience because you're evoking something bigger than just sound and what about music outside of wrestling outside of wrestling Absolutely. I, I So I got asked the other day, who's my Mount Rushmore of music? And I, I rattled it off for somebody and it's Fugazi. I'm a big punk rocker. I, I love punk rock. Fugazi's my favorite band. I like pretty much everything off of the Discord label, especially if it's of the vintage of like 1988 to about 2000. I love Thelonious Monk. He's my favorite jazz musician. I love Miles Davis and I love John Coltrane as well, but I just like love, love, love Thelonious Monk. I like a lot of post-punk, like Husker Du, The Replacements, that sort of thing. I like new wave of British heavy metal. So I like Black Sabbath. I like Diamond Head. I like Motorhead. I like that kind of stuff. Budgie. Uh, any of those kind of bands. I, I like that stuff. And I like funk a lot. I'm actually going to see the Ohio Players here at the end of the month. So I'm a big fan of James Brown, the Gap Band, Ohio Players. I, I, anything of that vintage, really into that too. And I like hip-hop a lot. Fugazi. Motorhead, and Thelonious Monk. That is quite a mix there. That is quite a spectrum of music you got going there. Uh, speaking of Iron Maiden, actually, I'm going to be seeing Iron Maiden in concert in a few days. Okay, all right. Yeah, they're coming to uh, Massachusetts, my neck of the woods. Oh, and we're both from Massachusetts, too. I'm actually born in Springfield, Massachusetts. Really? Yeah. I'm from Framingham. Oh, my grandpa's from there. That's where he was born. Yeah. Yeah, I live in Boston, but I'm originally from Framingham. I lived there for the first uh, 22 years of my life, and then a couple years ago, I moved to Boston for work. Yeah, yeah, I went to school up at UMass Amherst, too. Yep, a bunch so, of my friends went there from high school. I like a lot of, like, uh, Massachusetts-based bands, too, like Dinosaur Jr., those sorts of bands. Yeah, man, there's a lot of good music that came out of where we're from. Mission of Burma? Definitely Mission of Burma. Love Mission of Burma. Off the top of my head, the only Massachusetts bands I can think of are Aerosmith and Boston. So if you give me a minute, I can dig a little deeper. Boston's from Boston? No shit, they're from Massachusetts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, connecting the dots. That's what we do here in Music of the Mat. Today we are doing a theme history episode. And the wrestler we're looking at today is the King of Strong Style, Shinsuke Nakamura. You can uh, currently see him every week on SmackDown, which just blows my mind that he's on WWE TV still. I mean, for years, when you thought of Shinsuke Nakamura, you thought of New Japan Pro Wrestling. He was one of their guys through and through that helped shuffle in this golden age of New Japan that we're living in right now. It was his charisma, his talent that helped put them back on the map. Nakamura was in New Japan for well over a decade. His first match was in 2002, and from the beginning, he was seen as this hot prospect. So much so that they dubbed him the Super Rookie. I mean, the sky was the limit for Nakamura from the very beginning. If you thought Okada got the mega push at an early time in his career, check this out. He debuts on August 29th, 2002. 
Just 16 months later, December 9, 2003, he beats Tenzan for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Still, to this day, the youngest IWGP Heavyweight Champion in history. And from then, it was just accolade after accolade after accolade. Three-time IWGP Heavyweight Champion. Five-time IWGP Intercontinental Champion. A belt that he undeniably made important and popular in New Japan. He's also a former IWGP Tag Team Champion with Hiroshi Tanahashi and once held the more obscure IWGP U30 Openweight Championship. He also won the 2011 G1 Climax, the 2006 G1 Tag League with Masahiro Chono, and the 2014 New Japan Cup. Not to mention, he's a two-time NXT champion. So Nakamura has accomplished quite a bit in his career. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree. I think of all the accolades that you listed with Shinsuke Nakamura in his time in New Japan Wrestling, I think the thing that I will associate his career with there the most is putting the IWGP Intercontinental title on the map. Because his initial run before he got his charisma injection is kind of pedestrian, to be completely honest. As you listed off, he got the rocket strapped to him in a way that doesn't even really analog nicely to Okada. His is actually more pronounced and, frankly, more undeserving. I don't think he was really ready for the amount of weight that was put on his shoulders at that phase of his career. But obviously he lived up and exceeded all expectations as his career has continued on here. And I think that he single-handedly put the IWGP Intercontinental title belt on the map and made it a relevant, not quite on the same level as the IWGP title, but at its peak, the Intercontinental title was something that was as intriguing as uh, the IWGP title. And at some of the better Wrestle Kingdoms in the last few years here, those Intercontinental title matches have been must-watch. Oh yeah, those matches he had with Abushi and Styles and Tanahashi, just to name a few, were absolutely incredible matches. But going back to what you said about his early run being pedestrian, I remember the first time I saw Nakamura. This was like 2006, I believe. Uh, there's a local cable access show here in Massachusetts called Tokan Ratsuden, which was essentially English commentary on New Japan World years before there was a New Japan World. These two guys would do English commentary over Japanese wrestling matches. And that's where I first discovered guys like Kobashi and Tanahashi and Masawa and Chono and Tenzan and Nagata and Liger and so many other guys. That's where I discovered Shinsuke Nakamura. And early to mid-2000s Shinsuke Nakamura compared to contemporary King of Strong Style Nakamura, it's like night and day. Young Nakamura has short hair, non-leather black tights, very straightforward, very no-nonsense, very much a wrestler. To give more context, this was back when his finisher was the Shining Triangle, and he was still doing the El Nino Moonsault, which are cool moves, but besides all that, nothing about that Nakamura really stood out to me. He didn't have any of the mannerisms, or the moves, or the features that King of Strong Style Nakamura has today. He was, like I said, very straightforward, very no-nonsense, very much a product of the Enochiism era, which was all about shoot fighting, MMA, no-nonsense fighters. He was a good wrestler, 
Don't get me wrong, he just wasn't at that next level for me. There's nothing for me to latch onto with him. I'm not saying that no nonsense doesn't work. You know, look at Shibata, look at Ishii. I'm saying it didn't work for Nakamura. So when years later, when I was getting back into New Japan around 2013 or so, and I saw the King of Strong Style, Nakamura, I saw this uber charismatic, outlandish persona in red leather pants who was doing these weird gesticulations and being personable and fun and caving guys' faces in with the Beaumaye. That's when I grabbed onto him. That's what hooked me with Nakamura. He needed to change to reach the next level. And with Nakamura, it worked out beautifully. I think it's really hard to go to the next level as a quote-unquote no-nonsense kind of guy. So Shibata is one of my favorite wrestlers, and obviously the injuries that happened to Shibata made me very, very sad because I finally thought we were coming around the corner to the big Shibata push that I've been waiting for for years where he'd get more main event matches and that sort of thing. Now, Shibata was having a hard time ever breaking through to that upper echelon, and I think part of the burden was that he had a flat, no-nonsense character. Great worker, stiff as shit. Some of my favorite matches to watch in those Shibata versus Ishii matches, putting a smile on your face, they put a smile on my face. Big fan. But it's really tough to go the extra mile when you're theme is loud fast punk music and you come to the ring not moving fast not high energy not doing a becky lynch sort of like yeah 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 yeah, yeah," sort of thing that you need to do with a punk rock pacing and you're just walking no nonsense your your nickname is mr wrestling And, and i love him but i think it's really hard to build on that and and nakamura is a great wrestler but i think what makes nakamura so great is he has a limited move set that he knows how to use fully because he fully understands this character. And he he is not a bad technical wrestler, but he's never been the super technician that a no-nonsense, I'm just a guy who comes down and wrestles, that is sort of necessitating. But even to that point... Great wrestlers still need charisma. Why is Kurt Angle so awesome, right? It's not just because Kurt Angle can turn in a good match. If Kurt Angle could just turn in a competent match, you know who he'd be? He'd be Chad Gable. What made Kurt Angle so great is that Kurt Angle had this fully formed personality and this sense of humor and all of these things that you need to have in wrestling because wrestling isn't real fighting. Wrestling is simulated fighting. It's storytelling inside of a ring. And the Nakamura swag character, the Michael Jackson infusion, all the gesticulations and everything, it becomes this great bed for which you can build a match on top of and tell stories with. I really like the Anoki reference because I think you can look at Shinsuke Nakamura's career and understand it more fully by looking at that shift in booking from the Anoki era to the Ghetto era. Swags K is a character that makes perfect sense for what Ghetto is trying to do, whereas you look at the earlier incarnation of Shinsuke Nakamura, and that is definitely much more reminiscent of Anoki's model, but Anoki, of course, and his sort of worldview of wrestling became dated even in Japan. Uh, I think we should shift a little bit, though, to Nakamura in NXT versus WWE. I really liked him in NXT, I don't know how I'm feeling about the WWE adaptation, though. It feels like something has been missing so far. I think that's true for a lot of wrestlers. When they leave NXT and go to the main roster, they may start off strong, but then they start to falter. Uh, Look at Bayley. Look at American Alpha. 
look at Apollo Crews, Emma, just to name a few. This could be because of a number of reasons. Too much micromanaging, perhaps. Week-to-week uh, -week booking, being inconsistent. You know, one minute, American Alpha are the tag champs. Next minute, they're nowhere to be seen. Or it could be the loss of intimacy that comes from moving out of full sail and into larger arenas with different crowds week to week. I wouldn't say that Nakamura has suffered greatly after moving to the main roster, but like you said, Chris, there's something amiss. He's not living up to the potential that we know he has. Yeah, you bring up booking from week to week. And I think that that is a big problem right now, and that ties into a news event that's happening here over the weekend as we're taping, which is the cancellation of Talking Smack. So I think Talking Smack has been eschewed, and Talking Smack was a really successful vehicle for a lot of these SmackDown talents to get over. So you look at a guy like The Miz, and he got over substantially through Talking Smack, and now Vince is able to use The Miz on Raw, and... It's very successful, but because you're booking from week to week, you forget what made things successful. And I think it allows for things to get lost in the shuffle. Now, the difference between Nakamura and American Alpha and Apollo Crews that you brought up is I think American Alpha and Apollo Crews, especially if you paired Crews with a tag team partner, can be brought up into the mid-card and kind of kept there in that mid-card cooler for a second. And then, you know, you can heat them up as you need to. With a guy like Nakamura, one, he's in his 30s already. Two, he is what he is. It's not like he's going to have some big uptick in talent and move to some new echelon or some third iteration of his career. I kind of think that Nakamura, this is the person that he is as a professional wrestler which is a damn good professional wrestler. But I think you need to have big video packages when you bring the guy up. And then I think there's also a longer-standing problem of Vince not really knowing, and other booking agents, not really knowing how to present people with limited English vocabulary skills in a way that makes them seem badass, which is ironic because WCW, for all their many problems, that was one thing they were always very good at. They were able to get people over who had a limited vocabulary in English that got them over as popular people, like Rey Mysterio. He never cut promos, but he was very popular. We'll see how it turns out because he's only been on SmackDown for a few months. He debuted in April. It may take a little longer to get those big, big matches out of him on the main roster, but I think Nakamura, like Sami Zayn, has enough innate charisma and talent where he can keep the audience invested in him. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I think that he has just enough intangibles in the ring, and his style adapts well to the WWE style. I think the only thing that could really hold him back is bad pairings, bad writing, um, or like a schlocky love angle. Nothing tends to make people uncooler in WWE than a shitty love angle. Yeah, Nakamura and love angle, those are those are two things that do not go together. The one thing I have been blessing right now is that Asuka and Nakamura have not been locked into a love angle. Oh, don't even joke about that, Chris. Do not curse Nakamura and Asuka with, with that phrase. Please don't. Yeah, I'm sorry I even said it out loud. Anyway, let's turn our attentions now to Nakamura's theme history. And... This will be the shortest theme history on the podcast to date. We have four themes to discuss in total. Technically three, because one of them is a remix. So we'll start with Nakamura's first theme here. He had this one from his debut in New Japan 
in 2002, and he had this for two years until 2004. It was released in Japan on an album called Battle City, Arata na Cho Senshi Hero. The song is called Moving City. about this song is that it's actually a good representation of the time period. This is 2002, so again, we're still in the Enochiism era. We're still in the dark days of New Japan. And who are the big homegrown stars around this time? Tanahashi is still young. No Okada. No Omega. No Naito. You've got Chono. You've got Tenzan. You've got Nagata. Nakanishi. You've got the New Japan dads. And this song, Moving City, sounds very similar in style to that style of themes, the New Japan Dad style of themes. Upbeat, energetic, virtuoso heavy metal with a prominent focus on guitar work with a healthy dose of keyboards underneath to pad it out. As we pointed out on the New Japan Dads episode, very video game-like. Yeah, absolutely. I think Moving City sounds like music from Mega Man X or Mega Man X2 or X3. It has that same sort of driving pace that you would get in, like, a Storm Eagles theme song, which is probably my favorite Mega Man X-era theme song. Uh, I think it's a little too fast for an entrance theme song, if I can make sort of a broader stylistic statement, because the tempo necessitates the person to come out and do the Becky Lynch style yeah i'm here i can't wait to be here fingers pointing in the air jumping around running at one end of the balcony and and i think that pigeonholes a wrestler in a very certain type of character and i think it's really hard to have a theme like this and go from being heel to face although obviously when you switch from being heel to face you usually change your music up as well i just think this is generally too fast for a human being to walk out to the ring to yeah the speed of the song certainly contrasts with Nakamura here. This energetic song being used for a straightforward type of guy. Not much wackiness, not much of a spark to him, so it's kind of off there. But if you think about it, this type of song actually fits this period of Nakamura. Because like early Nakamura, there isn't much to say about the song. It's a fine song, nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't have that individual spark that really makes it stand out from the other themes. Because if you stuck this theme with the other New Japan Dad themes of this time period, of the sound, you're not going to single this one out as being unique. You'll listen to it and you'll move on. Just like early Nakamura, you're not going to look at him and say, wow, this guy really pops off the screen. Because he doesn't have that unique flavor to him. So Moving City, in a way, represents this period of Nakamura quite accurately. I have a rule that I teach my songwriting composition students, which is lifted from the early era of the Beatles, who wrote a bunch of songs back in their early days, and they were a very 
prodigious band, they, voluminous. They wrote a lot of stuff. They practiced a lot. Everything that the Beatles did from like 1959 to about 1963, it's way more than you'd think in terms of volume. They did a lot of stuff. And so they're always cranking out these tunes, and a lot of early Beatles songs, if you hear them, they sound the same. So how did the Beatles decide what was a keeper and what wasn't a keeper? Well, they would write stuff, and the rule would be, if you can remember the song and if you can hum the song, the next day, that song's a keeper. It's got a melody that's strong and evocative. And I feel with the other Nakamura themes, they are very much hummable. The melody motif is one that very much sticks in your head. However, with Moving City, I feel like it's a mode that you can describe to someone, but if you were put on the spot to hum Moving City at someone, or if you had to hum this song at someone and get them to guess what the theme song was, they'd never get it in a thousand years. Definitely. Nakamura's other themes that he has are a lot catchier than this one, no doubt. Now, as far as the composer is concerned, did you find out who the composer for this theme is? Because I couldn't find anything. I could not. I, 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 to be honest, I didn't look up uh, this specific composer, but uh, I did not see it on the video or anything like that. Yeah, usually I go to wrestlingmedia.ws. That's a pretty good website for finding who makes the themes, but I couldn't find anything on there who did this theme. So if any listener out there who does know who composed Moving City, give us a shout-out at Music of the Mat on Twitter. Let us know. We go now to Nakamura's second and final New Japan theme. It's the one that people associate him with the most for a very good reason. He held it for 12 years, 2004 to 2016. You can find it on NJPW Greatest Music 1. This is Julia Claris with the song Subconscious Entry Version. Now here is a theme that stands out from the pack. Here is a theme that makes you pay attention. Much like Moving City, this song leans towards the harder side of the rock spectrum. It's not full-blown virtuoso metal, but it's still a rocker. So it has that in common with the first theme. And it did come out around the same time as Moving City, 2004. But there are so many key differences that grab you by the collar and make you pay attention. First of all, that intro. Oh man, it gets me pumped up every time I hear it. Because it's so simple. Start minimal, then you build it up. Start minimal, then add things to it. It's a tried and true formula to follow. You start with the symbols, slowly peeking in. And from there, you add little pieces to build up the suspense. You've got the loud boom of the drum. Then the flutes come in. Then it has this low synth bass, this which is killer. And after 20 seconds, then that's when the guitar riff kicks in. 
and having that build-up intro, that's how you make a theme stand out amongst others in this time period. Because a lot of the themes around this time start off with that energetic speed metal. Look at Nagata's theme, look at Tenzan's theme. So how do you make your theme be different in this time? You have an intro that builds up the tension and builds up the suspense and you make the audience wait for the hook to kick in. That makes such a huge difference in this context. Yeah, the intro, everything you describe is perfect. I love when we build up to that low synth playing the bum 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 bum. Like once we get to that moment, I'm ready, I'm jazzed for this guy to come out. That entire intro before the guitars ever drop invokes this idea of, oh, this is a big guy, this is important, something really cool is about to happen. You kind of get this pressure drop mode that happens in those classic New Japan pay-per-views where that intro comes in, everything gets a little more quiet, and everyone's listening in, and then the lights come up and Nakamura is doing something way cool. And I love this melody because this melody is hard rocking. It is, I'm trying to think of the hard rock style that it most evokes and I, I'm failing for words, but what I like about it is it threads the needle between being a hard rock style, but also being distinctly Japanese with the way that the melody is structured, uh, not to get too dorky about this, but there is a Japanese scale and Japanese melodies are built very much around uh, the second, which is an interval, and the minor sixth, which is also an interval. And in the B section, we get a lot more of the Japanese flavor inside of this, but the main section, that main hook on the guitar, is more of a straight hard rock section. The two sections contrast really nice with each other. Another thing that I like about this that stands out from other Japanese wrestling themes is the way that they did the double track guitars. So Japanese themes and Japanese music, uh, they heard harmonized, as you were saying, you're going to see Iron Maiden. They heard Iron Maiden do those minor and major thirds back in 1983, and they were like, fuck yeah, and they built an entire musical genre around it. But what I like is instead of using the Iron Maiden minor thirds and minor four, or not minor force, but perfect force and perfect fists, that sort of thing, this theme is largely built around the two guitars guitars being tracked an octave on top of each other, which gives the melody more presence without introducing more notes into it. So all of those main hooks are happening in one register and then also another register up. It just makes the melody cut through more. Last but not least, what I love about this is that this theme song, unlike a lot of theme songs, has two distinct melodies that are equally evocative. Like, you can remember them both, and when I hum this song, I very naturally hum from the A section into the B section, and even get to uh, the 5 chord, which is the turnaround chord, and, like, I find myself humming that and just immediately taking myself right back into the A section again in my head. Yeah, those guitars are so much more memorable in this song as opposed to Moving City. Can you hum Moving City? Like, right now, I'm putting you on the spot. Can you hum Moving City? I can remember the intro, but after that, I lose it. I want to mention, Chris, another part of the song that I love so much which is the bridge, the breakdown section. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it comes in around two minutes where it takes out the guitars and the drums and it gets real quiet. And all you hear is the piano and the cymbals.
then the guitar comes in. Bam, right back into the song. It doesn't last very long, only about 30 seconds or so, but you don't need a super long bridge to make an impact. It's all about being unique. And when you go from this big rock guitar section to this quiet piano section that slowly builds up the tension, again, like the intro, I have to reiterate, that's what makes a theme stand out. Another songwriting tip that I taught my students is that good songs have good bridges. And good bridges take you somewhere. That's why it's called the bridge. It's easy to do the James Brown writing convention and the bridge is just the A riff up a fifth or up a fourth. But if you're doing a good bridge, that good bridge is a legitimate departure that makes sense from the original place that you were at. And also, that return off the bridge becomes epic. And this song has a bridge that very much delivers on that. Going back to the pace thing that you mentioned, I think that this theme locks in perfectly with Nakamura's gait, his stride. He really started tailoring his entrance and his mannerisms and everything to this song. And so, this song really fits him like a glove and he found his personality and his character inside of this song. And I'd argue that even as he has come to WWE, his approach and the way that he moves and really kind of what he's thinking is still very much dictated by the decisions he made with this song and through this song and inspired by this song. What's interesting about this theme in Nakamura is that he had it for so long, 16 years. He had it from 2004 until the end. So that includes the changeover from old, serious Nakamura to King of Strong Style Nakamura. Oftentimes, when a guy gets a gimmick change, they get a new theme to go along with it. Like, for example, Undertaker becoming American Badass. He stopped using Dark Side and started using Kid Rock. Oh, don't remind me of... No, don't. Please, why, why, why? That wasn't, that wasn't a good move. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. How about this? How about this? When Prince Devitt turned heel and formed the Bullet Club, and he became the real rock and roller, he stopped using, you're the best around, nothing's ever gonna bring you down, and he used a new theme, real rock and roller. Real rock and roller! Yeah. Yeah. With Nakamura, he kept subconscious from 2004 through Rise and Chaos and the creation of King of Strong Style, Swagske, Nakamura, and all that stuff. Which is pretty cool because, you know, as we've seen, some guys get multiple themes in the span of one gimmick. I mean, look at Wade Barrett. Wade Barrett got like three themes in the span of three years, which is nuts. But Nakamura, he kept the same theme for so long. Yeah, and he grew into the theme. I I think that this theme is a really great summary of his career, a good metaphor for his career, because it's a theme that he didn't initially quite fit. And if you look at that early iteration of Nakamura's character, this is a theme that's fine for that character, but it is not, it's not contrasting. It doesn't take away from the character, but it doesn't necessarily enhance the character or anything like that. Once he gets the charisma injection and becomes the Michael Jackson infused Shinsuke Nakamura, 
it's funny because this theme all of a sudden starts fitting him even more like a glove, but that was probably not the original intent when they gave him this theme. It just so happened that he grew into this theme and this theme grew into him. What I think is interesting, too, about this theme, I, I want to run this against you. I think that CFO knocked off this theme to make Kurt Hawkins' theme song for Face the Facts, Kurt Hawkins. Oh, seriously? Face the Facts, Kurt Hawkins? Really? Yeah. Uh, have you, you've, you've heard the Kurt Hawkins theme song. I, well, I mean, you don't hear it often because usually he's just standing in the ring and he's about to get beaten up by Seth Rollins. If I'm being honest, I don't remember Kurt Hawkins' new theme. Uh, his old theme I remember quite well in the middle of it now, but not the new one. Well, listen to what is the core of the Kurt Hawkins theme song, uh, the main guitar hook, and it's essentially bump, 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 bump. It's very, very close to the them up side by side you hear the same groove it's about the same tempo i don't think they're in the same key but i think they're in very close keys i think nakamura's theme is in c sharp minor and hawkins theme song i want to say is in c or in b it's close but no cigar um i i thought it was interesting because i know that cfo when they got nakamura and they got tasked with writing a theme song for nakamura tried a few different things including i don't know if you knew this but they were going to give nakamura the glorious theme uh, for bobby Roode. no seriously yeah isn't that weird i have never heard that rumor can you imagine him coming out to glorious like it'd be weird right super weird because Glorious to me is a distinctly heel theme. It doesn't really fit the fun-loving babyface Nakamura at all. Also, Nakamura, he isn't known for having lyrics in his themes. He's always had instrumentals in his career. Yeah, and I think that that fits with the character too, right? Nakamura is not a man of a ton of words. He's a man of actions. And with the Glorious theme, I think that it would only have worked for Nakamura's character in a very, very specific precise presentation of Nakamura where you present him as the king of strong style and he comes out kind of like the way he came out to Wrestle Kingdom I think his last Wrestle Kingdom where he had the crown on and he had the cape and you were doing those sorts of big entrances that was Wrestle Kingdom 9 that was 9 yeah that was 9 against Kota Ibushi when he came out dressed as a king yes so I, I think if you have that sort of presentation, yeah, it would work. Now, the problem with that, too, and, and this is going to be a problem for WWE if they ever bring up, like, Bobby Roode, right? You have to have these big, over-the-fucking-top entrances every single time. Otherwise, you really pull the sting out of that theme song. I, I think if Roode ever gets called up to the main roster, if Glorious just becomes a thing that pops on as he runs down to the ring to beat up somebody, it's going to pull a lot of the sting out of what the theme song brings, that oomph and that uh, main event level cachet. This is a difference between the New Japan style of presentation versus the WWE style of presentation. 
which is that in New Japan, very rarely do people run down to the ring to, you know, interfere after a match or something like that. And even if they do, their music doesn't come on, so we don't take away the magic of the theme song. The theme song is preserved for when they make their specific entrances, whereas in WWE, we're playing people's theme songs all the damn time, even when it doesn't make sense. Oh, you're right about that, certainly. Uh, If, for example... Tanahashi is in the ring after a match celebrating. You're not going to hear the underboss. Pew, 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 pew. And then out comes Bad Luck Folly and he beats up Tanahashi. That wouldn't happen. Folly would just come out to no music and beat him up. And his music wouldn't play afterwards either. And that's really key too. Right. Folly's theme wouldn't play afterwards. Exactly. Now the composer for this theme is Julia Claris. And I really couldn't find any info about her. All I know is she did this theme, and she did Tanahashi's theme, High Energy. Rest in peace, by the way. Chris, did you find anything in your research about Julia Claris? Okay, so there's a bunch of Julia Clarises. I want to say that she is a violinist, which I think is an interesting through line, if indeed I am right about that, and she is a violinist, and you then get to the CFO themes that are so heavily oriented on the violin. It's interesting that a violinist might have written this song. However, I say might because I was trying to figure out if this was the right Julia Claris, and unfortunately the name is common enough that it led to some ambiguity. But I did find a Julia Claris who was a musician, and she plays violin. So your final answer is maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Crack analysis, Chris. Nice job. (laughs) Uh, Don't worry about it. I won't hold it against you. Sammy, I was listening backstage, and I have to agree with you. You do do definitely deserve something very, very special at NXT TakeOver Dallas. Your opponent will be NXT's newest signee, this man. In 2016, Nakamura decided to leave New Japan and sign with WWE. Now, when guys sign with WWE, there's always that period of time after they sign, but before they debut, where you wonder what their new entrance music is going to be. Sometimes it ends up being a letdown. I'll tell you a story here, uh, Chris. Do you remember when Monty Brown was in WWE as Marcus Corvon? No, I don't. I don't. Do you know who Monty Brown is? I don't. Uh, this, this appears to be a guy who was wrestling during my gap of time in watching. Okay, no problem, no problem. Monty Brown was a TNA guy for a few years. His gimmick was the alpha male, Monty Brown. He was essentially this big, mean ass kicker. And for much of his TNA run, he was booked as a big, mean ass kicker, just beating the crap out of other guys on the roster. And in TNA, his theme was a ripoff version 
of Down With The Sickness by Disturbed. You know, a metal song, which fit his character perfectly. Monty left TNA in 2006 and signed with WWE. And I remember thinking at the time, what is his new theme music going to be? I thought then that he was going to get, you know, a rock song or a metal song that, like his TNA theme, would fit his big ass-kicker persona. That didn't happen. When he debuted on WWE's ECW brand as Marcus Corvan, he came out to a song called Smooth, which is this jazzy R&B sort of pseudo-ladies' man, braggadocious oh. type of song that did not oh. fit him at all. Because he was still presented as the alpha male. But when you go from a metal, disturbed ripoff to a jazzy R&B number and keep the same gimmick, it's not going to work. And it didn't work. Nakamura, on the other hand, is a case where it actually did end up working quite well. So let's hear his WWE theme. This is CFOs with The Rising Sun. Did you watch Nakamura's debut against Sami Zayn at TakeOver Live? I did watch it live, yes. I watched it live too, and I was quite nervous to see what song he would come out to. Once the lights went out, and those opening notes hit, those da na na da na 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 and then the violins kicked in. I was all in on it. Combine that with the lighting effects and the crowd going nuts, you couldn't have asked for a better debut entrance theme, in my opinion. I like this song, and I think that it does a nice job evoking the Shinsuke Nakamura mood. I like that it is a little bit slower than the normal pace of a wrestling theme song. Without being arduously slow, it is moving but it's just a bit slower so that you can really take in the fullness of Nakamura's entrance. I like the breakdown in the B section, how we kind of build back up to the A section. The song gets a little repetitive, and I think with Nakamura's entrance, the, the one place where I would say that this song falls a little bit short is that Nakamura, traditionally in pay-per-views, has a fairly long entrance, and one of the things that works so good with Subconscious is that we usually go around the full bend all the way to that really cool bridge that we mentioned and then build back up into the A section. I think all the way around, that's like over two minutes. Whereas Rising Sun, we're looping again at around, I want to say the minute 20 mark or the minute 30 mark. So it's a little bit shorter. And with Nakamura's entrance, the, the melody motif tends to overstay its welcome for me, just a sconch. Now they've gotten around that entirely by adding in these really cool augments whenever they do pay-per-views well they'll bring in a violin player or they'll do all these extra things where the intro goes on longer so the actual musical loop if you will now stretches out to two to two and a half minutes yeah if cfos are at fault for anything it's that they tend to make their themes a bit repetitive they focus more on getting that catchy hook 
and repeating it than a complete song. They're A B. They're 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 so like A section, B section, A section, B. Like Seth Rollins is a really good example of a CFO theme. I, I don't like his theme. I think it's uh very repetitive and not particularly hummable. And also there's just too much drums. Like there needs to be less drums and more guitar or more melody carrying instruments. But I think the big problem is it's just it feels like we're on a constant circle of Yeah, like it just never stops. Valid points. That said, I still enjoy the song quite a bit. When I listen to it, I'm fascinated by the flow of the song because it sounds like a roller coaster. The intro and those frantic violins at the start are the ascension, the buildup. Then it reaches the peak. It does that violin note drop, that... That's the roller coaster dropping down the slope into the hook. That... That's that. Then the B section, that... That's the roller coaster reascending into the frantic violins again. Then it drops again into another violin note drop, back into the hook. Lather, rinse, repeat, until the song ends. Yeah, I I agree. I I think the one knock, and I told you this when you booked me for the show, is that I have the controversial opinion that Subconscious is a better written theme than the CFO theme. And for me, where that gets stacked up is the B sections, where I think Subconscious has B sections that are as strong as the motif. I feel like the B sections in Rising Sun are a little less memorable. It's not that I don't like this B section. I just, it, it, it kind of drops off. It loses a little bit of oomph. Whereas when we hit the bridge in subconscious, it's like the pressure drops out, but I know that it's immediately going to build back up. There's like a tension or an anticipation mode that I feel as a listener listening to that bridge versus rising sun that I don't quite get. I I like both themes. I think that this theme works really good for him, especially as a main event level talent. I, I just think that subconscious is probably a little bit stronger of a song. It's a different song, that's for sure. The big difference being that this song is not a guitar song. It's a violin song. Yeah, I like that choice. So here is a way to showcase Nakamura as this guy is special because his song isn't some three-chord guitar riff like Joe Schmo. He has a different type of song entirely. No, it gives, him, it gives him a signature voice, right? The violin becomes a symbol of Nakamura's voice and character. And so when Nakamura even comes to the ring with the violinist at these pay-per-views, that is something that WWE so far has set the table very nicely of, ah, yes, Nakamura, you think of the violin. You think of even just that lone violin melody. And I think that that's something that they're doing that's very smart. You've mentioned the special version of The Rising Sun that he's used on a couple of occasions. One was at TakeOver Brooklyn 2 last summer. The other was when Nakamura debuted on SmackDown in April. And this features a violinist named Lee England Jr.
On the podcast, we've talked a little bit about big match themes and what goes into them. To me, a big match version of a theme is when you have the regular theme as the base, and then you add some accoutrements to the mix here and there to spruce it up for special occasions. Here you've got Lee doing a violin solo in the intro, and then it goes into the song. But if you notice, his violin stays with the song. It stays in the mix, but it doesn't override it. The main violins are still the focus. That's what a big match theme should do. Again, the main version of Rising Sun is the bass, and these new violin parts are coming in, not overriding it, but boosting it up to make it special. Yeah, I I think that you nailed it with the big match theme. And and my general formula for how I think wrestling theme songs should be written is you need to be able to present the theme in three different ways. One, the abbreviated form that maybe just pops on after matches or pops on when someone's got to walk down to the ring and do an interview so you don't have the long extended intro every time. So whatever your main melodic hook is, we need to be able to skip the intro, cut to that melodic hook, and that can stand alone as a piece. You need to have the regular theme that has an intro, and then you also need to have some sort of iteration of the theme that can go big match mode so that we get a bigger version of that. And one thing that I do think CFO has done pretty nicely with this theme, and also I think is very doable with Subconscious, is that you get the big match feel, but if you edit it down, depending on where you choose to start the theme song from playing, you can end up at that abbreviated theme and not feel like you're chopping it off at the legs. Yeah, that works for both this theme and Subconscious. You can start Subconscious at the guitar riff, you know, that, that point, and with the rising sun, you can start it at the hook. Yeah. Yep, just like that. Yep, thank you, Chris. Well, that's it for Nakamura's themes. Um, as far as his future, well, right now he's feuding with Baron Corbin. So, Woo! Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Listen, I don't know what the future holds for Nakamura. He had that tease with AJ at Money in the Bank. Fingers crossed it's a Mania match because that would be incredible. In between then, who knows? Hopefully, he's presented as a big deal in the meantime because he's sort of in the vicinity of the main event, but he hasn't had that big blow-away superstar main event match that others have gotten. So hopefully, he gets that soon. Yeah, I I really worry about Nakamura on SmackDown now that SmackDown has lost Talking Smack because... Talking Smack, even though his appearances on Talking Smack weren't exactly, you know, rocking my world or anything like that, having that available to all the talent on the SmackDown roster helped a lot of those SmackDown guys find different iterations of their character for that brand or actually stumble onto an entirely new character. And with so much of the top of the card currently being occupied with Jinder friggin' Mahal, Uh, I don't know where you're going to fit Nakamura in. My only hope, and this is a naive hope, I'm pretty sure, is that what we're doing is we're building to Nakamura eventually beating Jinder Mahal. And that is the whole point that they're trying to appeal to the Indian and Japanese demographics, and they want to build to a India versus Japan style match on SmackDown, something like that, where... Nakamura is able to get the belt off of Jinder, but I don't even know that's going to happen. Yeah, like I said, fingers crossed, 
And uh, as Rich Krejci often says, arm's length, because uh, <laughs> this is still WWE after all. So that's all I'll say about that. Hey, that's going to do it for this episode of Music of the Mat. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I can't believe we didn't talk about Rob Conway's classic theme. The Randy Newman style one? Uh, am I coming back on for that? Do, 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 Just look at me. Do, 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 Just look at me. Hey, if you want it, you got it, buddy. Thank you. You are slotted. That song is now yours. Listen, I give you the floor. Plug away, sir. Plug away. Absolutely. If you like me talking about wrestling, I do that on this podcasting network. The show is called Lucha of the Hidden Temple. You, of course, can find it at VoicesOfWrestling.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. But if you like my voice and wonder what it sounds like when I talk about politics, I do that as well. And you can find that over at Don'tWorry.tv. Now, if you want to hear me talking about wrestling and politics, hey, guess what? You are in luck because over at Don'tWorry.tv right now, I just put up a new episode episode about it's actually a guy named Aaron Huertas he came on and we talked about wrestling but we also talked about climate change because what Aaron does is he helps scientists get prepared to do media appearances so there's a lot of rhetorical and communication skills many of which Aaron as he goes into he learned from wrestling so he talks about how he took a lot of those wrestling style conventions and is now teaching scientists how to go on things like Fox News and talk about climate change and not get railroaded by the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Real interesting show. Check it out over on Don'tWorry.tv. I'm very proud of it. And I want to thank you guys so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed myself thoroughly. And don't forget Twitter. Oh, man. Twitter. Boy, I love Twitter, right? And that is at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. Allow me to ruin your Twitter feed. It would be my pleasure. And as far as this podcast goes, you can follow us on Twitter at Music of the Mat. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew T. Rich. Check out past episodes of the podcast at VoicesOfWrestling.com. Sign up for the VOW forums at VoicesOfWrestling.com slash forums. And, of course, subscribe to the Voices of Wrestling podcast network, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Listen, review, subscribe. Tell your friends about this podcast. Chris Maffei and I, we love seeing the podcast grow. So do what you can. Spread the word about us. On the next episode of Music of the Mat, it will be another theme history episode. And the subject will be a man who has been making some headlines recently in the world of wrestling. In fact, you may have heard him quite a bit over the past month or so on the critically acclaimed Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast. He's the great one, the ultra male, the king of the mountain, Double J. He's the world's greatest lover, the world's greatest singer, and without a doubt, the world's greatest wrestler, the Cho Cho Chosen One. Wow! Bow, now, now. Jeff Jarrett. And to help me do that, I will be joined by a man who knows more about the history and the comings and goings of the Impact Zone than anyone else I know. He's the teacher of TNA, the Ayatollah of Impact, and the guru of Global Force. I'm talking about G-A-R-R-E-T-T-K-I-D-N-E-Y, Garrett Kidney. So episode 14 Garrett Kidney and I discuss the theme history of Jeff Jarrett. 
For Chris Novembrino and for Chris Maffei, I'm Andrew Rich. This has been Music of the Mat. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Music of the Mat is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The songs used throughout this show are property of their respective copyright holders. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery.